you only need to look at the pictures <coughs> of the singing of national anthems before a sporting event uh, like the European Football Championships and just to keep the balance with the Germans um, all flower of Scotland at a rugby match to realise how important national identity is to many people hand over heart sometimes singing lustily usually out of tune or overwhelmed by emotion, unable to sing at all, the players and their fellow citizens in the crowd declare their allegiance to the country that they love. So, to change citizenship, to change allegiance, is not a step that is taken lightly. In most countries, the occasion is marked by ceremony and the pledging of an oath of allegiance. Since the 1st of January 2004, applicants for British citizenship are required to make a pledge to the United Kingdom. This is what you have to say if you want to be British. I will give my loyalty to the United Kingdom and respect its rights and freedoms I will uphold its democratic values, I will observe its laws faithfully and fulfil my duties and obligations as a British citizen. You may think that's a bit tame. If you want something much stronger and more powerful, you only need to de look at what you have to do if you want to become an American uh, citizen. The pledge is far more explicit. Here's the preamble for United States citizens. Uh, you say, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. That's only the preamble. <laughs> if you want to be an American citizen, you have to give up your previous citizenship. And not only that, for the oath continues with a costly commitment in which you even affirm, I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law. So, to change your allegiance from one country to another is a very serious step. But there is an even more serious change of allegiance. And that is a change of belief system or religion, which is often tied up with nationality. Such a step is certainly no casual matter. It is a very costly step. And today we focus on one of the most dramatic such changes in history as we continue our series in the book of Acts in the New Testament, which we've called the Spreading Flame. If you were here for the last in our series, we saw how Saul of Tarsus, a zealous young Jew, is sent by the religious authorities in Jerusalem to root out and round up a heretical group known as the Followers of the Way. As he approached the city of Damascus in Syria, he experienced a dramatic, life-changing encounter. Struck to the ground by a flashing light from the sky, he hears a voice from heaven which says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asks, Who are you, Lord? And he receives a stunning reply. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. When he gets up, he can no longer see. 
He is blinded by the light. He is led by the hand into the city, and there he remains for three days as a devout Jew, in prayer and fasting, as he waits for these promised instructions. You will be told what you must do. So today, we look at what he has to do. And I want to simply suggest to you in our title, it means for this man a radical change of allegiance. So let's read on the story in Acts chapter 9. You'll need a Bible. The Bible's in the pews if you don't have one. And you'll find it on page 1102. Acts 9 verse 10. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man. All the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings. And before the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept a close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by, the, by night, lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and how the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea, sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. This is God's word. Well, I've got two simple things to say this morning about this change of allegiance. For Saul of Tarsus, for every person who encounters Jesus Christ, whether it or not it is as dramatic as it was for Saul... There are two directions, two areas in which we need to change allegiance. We have to change allegiance. 
First and foremost, of course, there is a change of allegiance towards the Lord, the Lord Jesus. But notice, first of all, there is also a change of allegiance to the Lord's disciples. If you look at the beginning of chapter 9, you've got the Bible in front of you. Um, you need to go back on the pictures here, um, Steve. We're, we're ahead of ourselves, sorry. If you look back at chapter 9... Saul is breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he sets out on this mission against the Lord's disciples. In human terms, though, this mission to Damascus goes very badly wrong. He has set out, again, if you look at the beginning of the chapter, with letters from the high priest in Jerusalem, addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found there any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. However, instead of entering Damascus in triumph to take prisoners, he is led by the hand like a prisoner. And unable to see, he is in no position to find anyone who belonged to the way. Instead, someone who is a follower of the way is sent to find him. So the first thing that this man Saul experiences after his encounter with Jesus, is an encounter with his followers. Despite the fact that he had persecuted them, we discover that Saul is welcomed into God's family by this man named Ananias in Damascus. Uh, Luke, the author of Acts, I'm almost certain, must have got the story from the horse's mouth, sorry, from Ananias' mouth. Uh, He must have spoken to him personally with the details of what exactly happened. It's a wonderful story, you can imagine. Here's this man Ananias praying, and God speaks to him and says, go to this house of Judas on Straight Street, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. He's seen a vision, a man called Ananias, and Ananias is praying, and Ananias, that's my name, yes? Uh, Is going to come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, it's not surprising that Ananias is not too enthusiastic about this commission. What follower of the way doesn't know about Saul of Tarsus? His murderous track record against the followers of Jesus. And and so he responds to the Lord. He says, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man. The harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. He's come with authority. He's actually come here. With authority from the chief priest to address all who call on your name. Uh, We shouldn't be too hard, I don't think, on Ananias for expressing his reservations. How often is it not true that often when we pray, we tell the Lord things as though he doesn't know about them? You know, we say to the Lord, I have heard, as if the Lord hasn't heard anything about it. Particularly when God's will for us seems contrary to what we want to do or think we ought to do. But there is never any mistake with God's instructions. He graciously reassures Ananias and us that he's got a plan. This man is a chosen man. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias was worried that he might suffer at the hands of Saul. The Lord tells him Saul is going to suffer at the hands of other people for the name of Christ. And so without further ado or question, Ananias sets off to find Saul using the divine root finder, uh, which takes him to Straight Street. It's actually, there's still, this is an old picture of it, but there's still a street in the east part of Damascus. If you ever go to Syria on holidays, a common holiday destination. It's a, a great place, Syria. If you go there in the east part of the city, there is a modern long street called uh, Straight Street, which is uh, called Straight Street. Uh, and so we see Ananias fulfilling the Lord's commission. 
look at what it says there. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I got thinking about this. Uh, What's the first thing you say to a new believer? I've had some interesting experiences over these past weeks since Mez has been the pastor at Nidri. From time to time, he comes into my office uh, with someone from Nidri. And he nearly always says the same thing. Hi, says Mez, this is Lee. He's just given his life to Jesus. Uh, And it's a wonderful experience. You look at the guy and think, wow, is that right? Hmm. What do you say to a new Christian? It's the first thing you say. Somebody says, this is so-and-so. They've just become a Christian. What do you do? What do you say? Do you look at them suspiciously and think, I'm not sure about that. Uh, What do you say to a new believer who you know has murdered fellow Christians? Well, the first thing Ananias does is to lay hands on Saul, which doesn't mean lay hands, it means lay hands. (laughs) And here's the most, I think it's a lovely story. The first thing Saul hears from a fellow Christian is, Brother Saul. Welcome to the family. The past is forgiven because Christ has forgiven you. And the term brother is somewhat quaint and old fashioned, isn't it? And maybe we don't use it these days. I think we should be careful not to discard it too quickly. If for no other reason that the book of Hebrews tells us about Christians, if you're a Christian, it says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. So, Brother Saul receives his sight, verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, he could see again. Dr. Luke includes the medical details, although we don't know what the medical details really mean. But his sight is instantly restored, and although it's not explicitly stated, he also receives the Spirit. And Ananias is sent to restore his sight, to give him the Spirit. Whether this is before, during, or immediately after his baptism, we don't know, because immediately Saul is baptized. Verse 18, he got up and was baptized. Now, for a Jew like Paul, with his pedigree, as a strict Jew, a Pharisee, to submit to baptism was a very costly and humbling experience. Among the Jews, baptism was known. It was baptism was what Gentiles had to do if they wanted to become Jews and accepted as Jews. If you were a Jew like Paul, you were born a Jew, that was your pedigree, and baptism wasn't for you. But not for Saul. The first thing he does is he submits to baptism. Willingly, immediately. American pastor John MacArthur comments, Saul arose and was baptized. By that one act, he openly linked with the very people he had hated and persecuted. His hated enemies became his friends. It's a dramatic change of allegiance. And and from this point onwards, for Saul, the sign of baptism marked initiation into God's family. As a member of God's people, we often think of baptism, we've got a baptismal service this evening, uh, of depicting a new relationship that people have with Jesus. Of course, that is primary. But also primary, if you can have two things that are primary, 
When you become a Christian, you identify with God's people. Those of us who have worked in them, for example, in the Muslim world, know that the biggest step a Muslim takes is not to receive Jesus. Often, if you keep quiet about it, you're okay. The costly step for a Muslim is to be baptized because you're identifying with God's people. Costly change. I think of a young woman from a very wealthy family in North Africa who, who had the privilege of baptizing in a previous church and her father was very well known in the government and uh, he sent, immediately sent a message to everyone he said, my daughter is dead as far as he was concerned, she was finished it's a very costly step you identify with Christ's people writing some years later to the church in Corinth you remember the church in Corinth was divided into factions falling out with one another about status and who belonged where uh, this is what Paul writes Saul who became Paul perhaps his other name the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. It is the great unifying act that we all humble ourselves in baptism. So, on a day when the baptismal pool is open, I ask a simple question, if you belong to Jesus Christ, have you identified with his people? Have you taken the costly step of baptism? Maybe pride, pride in your pedigree is a problem. Too many Christians today think they can be lone Christians who don't belong to any local body of people, a local church. Such a thing would have been unthinkable to Saul and to any New Testament Christian. So Ananias disappears from the scene. And he disappears from the pages of Scripture. But while Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle, fills the subsequent story in Acts and most of the rest of the New Testament, we should not forget the crucial role that Ananias played in his life. You see, the most vulnerable time for any new baby is the first days and weeks of its life. And so it is with new Christians. You may never become a soul of Tarsus. A missionary, a writer, a leader in the church. But maybe God wants you to be an Ananias. To look out for new Christians. To nurture them in the faith. You say, oh, I couldn't do that. I don't know enough. Listen, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, particularly been sitting in this church, you know infinitely more than a new Christian knows. Just a bit further down the road, tell them about Jesus. Welcome them into God's family. Ask for them. Pray for them. Get alongside them. William Barclay rightly describes Ananias as one of the forgotten heroes of the Christian church. Only in eternity, as the Lord Jesus himself reminded us, when some who were first will be last and some who were last will be first, will the Ananias be remembered and rewarded. Maybe you can be an Ananias. Or maybe you can be a Barnabas. We already met Barnabas early in the story of Acts. He was the one who gave Saul some land. He came from Cyprus. He was a Levite. And he's introduced as Barnabas, the son of encouragement. That's what it means. Now we make. Now we meet Barnabas again and we discover that he continues to live up to his name. When Saul finally arrives in Jerusalem, and there's a kind of three-year gap here in Saul's life that's not mentioned by Luke. It's a compressed story. We know that from the what Paul tells us in Galatians 1. 
he finally arrives in Jerusalem after escaping from Damascus. What's the first thing he does? He tries to join the disciples there. But they're very suspicious of him, like Ananias. Is he a genuine disciple? Isn't he the man who was out to get Christians? You can only speculate what might have happened if Saul had been blackballed for life by the church at this particular point, which was quite possible. Instead, we find that Saul, already welcomed into God's family by Ananias in Damascus, is also welcomed into God's family by Barnabas in Jerusalem. If you look further down at verse 27. But Barnabas took him. Steve, this should be on the thing there. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Uh, Barnabas speaks up for Saul. He takes him along to the apostles. He takes a risk in commending him. Uh, Later we'll see in the story, God willing, that he keeps an eye on Saul. At an appropriate moment he brings him back into a situation where his great gifts can be used as a missionary, as a teacher, an evangelist. The rest, as they say, is history. But it's no exaggeration to say what a different history it might have been, but for Barnabas, the son of encouragement. There are some people in church who are great encouragers. Those of us who are pastors and in the Lord's work, we usually look out for them in the lounge. Just say something, you know. I'm not expecting, by the way, everybody to give me a a word of encouragement. (laughs) It doesn't matter really, but... Uh, But there are some people who just have that gift of encouragement. You meet them and you know they're just going to encourage you. I could name them and I'm not going to embarrass them. But can he be a Barnabas? Someone who encourages young Christians. Some of you thanks them when you see them serving the Lord. You know, we're great at this sort of principle of don't say anything to encourage anybody. They might get proud. Just let them know when they go wrong. No, encourage them. So that was great. Really appreciated what you said, what you sang. Uh, how are you teaching my children when you pick them up after, after church? Be an encourager, be a Barnabas. Well, we turn from Saul's allegiance, this change of allegiance to the Lord's people, from, persecu- from persecutor to brother, to his future calling, which reveals above all else a change of allegiance to the Lord. Uh, when Saul set out on his mission to Damascus, he regarded Jesus of Nazareth as a heretic, with the utmost contempt, a pretended Messiah who had received his just deserts when he'd been crucified by the Romans. But when he heard the voice from heaven that, and asked, recognizing the voice of God, Who are you, Lord? He received an answer which was the last thing on earth he ever expected. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord is the Lord Jesus. In that moment, everything he believed about Jesus was turned on its head. And now he has a new commission to tell others what he's discovered. Many years later, he tells the story of his Damascus Road experience in his own words to a king and his entourage. Uh, You'll find it in Acts 26. And this is what he said was the Lord's commission. 
the Lord said to Saul, I have appointed, uh, appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen of me, what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people, from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so immediately, following the restoration of his sight, following the receiving of the Spirit, following his baptism into God's people, the first thing Saul does, he begins his mission by spreading the news about Jesus with the same energy and zeal that he had used before to try and stamp out the name of Jesus. In his commentary on Acts, Darrell Buck, the American, writes, Saul the persecutor, with a letter from the high priest, is now Saul the witness, with a commission from Jesus. The heavenly call has trumped the earthly mission. So Saul the brother is also Saul the messenger. The man proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. No wonder everyone is amazed. The reason we're not amazed is that we fail to appreciate what a remarkable thing it was for an Orthodox Jew who was a Pharisee to actually say that a man called Jesus born as he understood or came from Nazareth, crucified under the Romans, was and is the Son of God. Amazing. No wonder it got into, into heated debates with his fellow Jews in Damascus. Yet he didn't change his message or his convictions. He continued to speak about Jesus and notice secondly, not only proclaiming he's the Son of God, but also proving that Jesus is the Christ. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Jerusalem, in Damascus, by proving that Jesus is the Christ. He used compelling evidence from the Hebrew Scriptures, we read about it in his, in his letters, to demonstrate that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promise, promises of God through the prophets of a coming Christ or Messiah. And when he arrived in Jerusalem, he continued to proclaim and prove that Jesus is Lord, the Son of God and the Christ. As we'll see in the book of Acts, as you see in the whole of the New Testament, what defined Paul was his allegiance to Jesus, his conviction that Jesus is Lord. Now, let me pause for a moment and say something. The test of any preacher, any church, any movement, is whether it fully focuses on Jesus alone, as Lord, the Son of God. Now, you may say, in a church like this, that goes without saying. The problem with things that go without saying is that before long, we stop saying them. And before much longer, we start saying something else. Uh, some of you will have heard about, is a flyer about it that I received, about meetings held this week in Broxburn, about fresh fire from the Florida healing outpouring. And it says, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Lakeland, Florida, has reached millions around the globe in what has been described as the most contagious revival in history. It centered on a man, and I looked him up on Google, and I put his name into the Google thing box, and it said, one of 703,000 hits. So if you haven't heard about him yet, you will hear about him in the future. Uh, so let me say something about him now. Uh, the man in question is a Canadian preacher and healer. His name is Todd Bentley. And among the many things about his ministry which should raise alarm bells is his focus on an angel called Emma, 
who appears to him in female form. He's had to explain why he does this. Let me quote exactly verbatim what he says. God said to me, the Lord said to me, the people already believe in Jesus. They need to believe in the supernatural. Tell them about the angel. You've got to get the people to believe in the angel. I wonder what the Apostle Paul might say about that. Well, you don't have to speculate because he did say something about it as he wrote his letters to the Christians in the province of Galatia. This is what he wrote. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which really is no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Now, you can't be much stronger than that. However, I do agree with Todd Bentley that God's people do need to believe in the supernatural. And there is nothing more supernatural than seeing people who are dead in their sins, born again of the Spirit of God, and their lives turned around like the two who will be baptised here, God willing, this evening. Like drug addicts, prostitutes, and rent boys in Nidri, who are turning to Christ and their lives are being turned upside down. That is the greatest supernatural proof of the work of God, no matter what other people may say about other things, which may or may not accompany the preaching of the Gospel. The heart is that Jesus Christ can change and transform people. Let me say something in conclusion. Here's these two changes of allegiance. A change of allegiance to God's people, change of allegiance to God's Son. I wonder if you've experienced a similar change of allegiance. Who are you committed to? You say, first and foremost, I belong to Jesus Christ, and secondly, I belong to his people. I identify with both of them, fully, wholeheartedly. Is there any way to tell? Well, there is. The test of our allegiance is that which Saul, Paul experienced, which is opposition. Bested by Saul in debate, the Jewish leaders in Damascus decided to take more drastic action against him. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. Verse 23, learning of their plans, he manages to elude, capture it, lower it from the the wall by a basket, and escapes to Jerusalem. And there the same thing happens again. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. This time the brothers in Jerusalem, for his own safety, take him to the port of Caesarea, put him on a ship heading for his home city of Tarsus, and we'll meet him again later in the story. The persecutor has become the persecuted. Luke tells us at this time there follows a period of peace for the whole region. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers living in the fear of the Lord. But this is not the end of the opposition for the church and certainly not for Saul. As we read in the description of his missionary journeys. Right at the end of his ministry, 30 years on of proclaiming Christ, here he is in prison, awaiting execution. And he writes a final letter to his young colleague, Timothy. And he summarises the experience. 
You, however, 2 Timothy 3, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from them all. And then he draws a general conclusion. The normal state of affairs for the Christian whose allegiance is to Christ and his people. In fact, he goes on to write, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I wonder, if you are allied to Christ and his people, is it costing you anything? I don't need necessarily people who are trying to kill you, though in some parts of the world, many parts of the world, it is a normal experience costs a great deal but is it costing you anything to say I belong to Christ I belong to his people I believe that Jesus Christ is a unique son of God the only saviour of the world that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved do you stand by that? prepared to live by that? do you identify with God's people warts and all you say I belong to God's people what were you doing yesterday? Oh, well, you know, I had a bit of a restful day. No, I was worshipping with God's people in Charlotte Chapel. I'm a Christian. Is it costing you anything? It may be because we've lost our focus on Jesus. That should be our priority, as it was for Paul. Knowing that he was about to be executed for proclaiming the gospel. Paul tells Timothy, here's your priority. The priority for any preacher, the priority for any church... For any Christian, it says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. In season, out of season, whether it's popular or not. Proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning. We ask your forgiveness that so easily we lose focus, so easily we seek after novelty, something more in addition to Christ. Refocus our hearts and our minds and our will on Jesus, your Son, our Saviour, Lord Messiah Christ. We give him the glory. Help us to be prepared to graciously share with those who don't know about him, but at the same time not to lose our convictions and to count the cost of following Christ, to identify with him in suffering and with his people in baptism and in service and commitment. And may we have the joy of seeing great supernatural things as people are born again of your spirit, their lives transformed, turned around, set in a new direction. May that be our focus and joy, for your word tells us that this causes the angels in heaven to rejoice when one sinner repents. So we commit this day to you and those who are baptized this evening. May it be a great testimony and witness. May we invite our friends and come together to celebrate what you have done 
in their lives and be reminded of what you've done in our lives and what you can do in any person's life who turns from their sin in repentance and puts their faith in Jesus Christ, your Son. We ask it in his name and for your glory. Amen.